All right. Third week of Advent, we've been spending time in the Gospel of Luke, looking at the story of John the Baptist, which is the traditional story that is told during Advent. Um, I've been trying to infuse the story sometimes with a few little bits also from our Advent book, All Creation Waits, for those of you who are using that on the podcast. So we, we started Luke 1 a couple of Sundays ago. And for those of you who were there, you remember that we started with the story of how a priest named Zechariah had received notice from an angel that his wife Elizabeth in her old age would bear a son and that he was to be called John. And we remembered together how Zechariah was stunned by that news and that after he received it, he wasn't able to speak for nine months. And so we might say that he took like an involuntary vow of holy silence. And then we see here, I'm gonna put it into the chat, Luke 1.23, when his time of service was completed, he returned home. So Zechariah worked as a priest in the, the really big temple in Jerusalem. And very often the temple priests, they would work like two week stints at a time. And so we know that Zechariah didn't live in Jerusalem itself, but made his home somewhere else in the vicinity, um, somewhere else in Judea. So Judea is the region that roughly is like the central portion of what is Israel today. Um, it's not really even, it's like a big, like if it were a sandwich, like Judea would be like the really big middle stuffing, right? So Judea covers quite a bit of the middle section. And it's likely that Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth lived in a city called Jericho, which is where a lot of the temple priests made their homes there in the first century. So Jerusalem and Jericho are probably about 15 miles apart. It's about a day's walk. Right? So if you're going from Jerusalem down to Jericho, it is like a downhill walk from uphill to downhill. So way easier to go home than it was to go to work. Um, so after that opening scene that we have with Zechariah learning this news, we have this little opening a uh, sentence or two here about Elizabeth, his wife. It says, it wasn't long before his wife Elizabeth conceived and she went off by herself for five months relishing her pregnancy. And I feel like there's, there's like a lot said in those two sentences. Um, we know that Zachariah, you know, he reacted with disbelief with the news and Elizabeth here is just so overcome with anticipation that she goes off and she, she spends a few months by herself. And I think we can really only guess at the motive here for this sort of self-imposed isolation. The story tells us that she relished the news, right? And so that time away might've been devotional, right? It might've been like a way that she could make a little bit of space for her own holy silence. That she could kind of digest this work of God that was happening in her, maybe have a little bit of space to dream uh, maybe to plan. She probably had thoughts about the rest of her life that now needed some reorganizing. Um, it's possible that her isolation was precautionary. You know, it says she was advanced in age, so maybe she was trying to help avoid the stress of pregnancy um, at that time. Maybe it was a little bit of all of these things. I could also imagine that Elizabeth might have had you know, a mixture of feelings about a late in life pregnancy, as many of us would. Um, if faced with that same prospect, many of us of all genders having that kind of news, right? I think it would have been completely understandable if Elizabeth had maybe even been a little bit frustrated with God. A little bit of this like, great, you know, like why wait until now 
to give me what my partner and I had been crying out for earlier in our lives. And I try to imagine like what, what the idea of having a baby might be like, or even a three-year-old, if you're like in your 50s or your 60s or however old she was. And for me, I know that sounds a little bit overwhelming. I thought if you're a grandparent, maybe who's been raising a grandchild, I could imagine you might understand Elizabeth. You might really be able to relate the, uh, to that, this idea that it's both a delight and something you relish and also a little bit of a, wow, here we go. So we're going to read this next bit of the story together, and I'm going to be copying it probably in a couple of pieces into the chat box, just because it's a little bit longer here. So here's the first part. It says, when it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, no, he's to be called John. Let me get the other half of it in here for you. They said to her, there's no one among your relatives that has that name. And then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. And so Zechariah asked for a writing tablet and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. And immediately his mouth was opened his tongue was set free, he began to speak, praising God, and all of the neighbors were filled with awe. And throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all of these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord was with him. Right, so we've got this story here. We've got the baby is born, and then eight days later, we see the neighbors are coming over and they're showing up for this traditional circumcision ritual, and that's, that's called the bris. So during the bris, you have the procedure, and then that's followed by the naming ceremony, right? So this order of events would have been expected, this idea that Zachariah and Elizabeth would name their child at this communal gathering. But as we watch this scene unfold, I think we can see that there are some comedic elements to Luke's narration, right? So we have to remember that a lot of these stories were told more than they were read, in the in the earliest days right they were often even acted out a bit the gospel stories um, were shared orally for a few decades before they were compiled and then organized and written down and so as they were being shared orally right there seems to be this a little bit of like a theatrical element to this part of the gospel that taps into that comedic stream of jewish writing so we, a few years ago, we, we did a whole um, sermon series on the book of Esther, which I might revisit at some point, but just talking about it as a giant comedy, because in the Jewish tradition, it's treated as burlesque. And you don't often hear about it talked that way within the Christian tradition, but that is the general consensus. When we heard Sarah Emanuel speak in October, she said that she reads the book of Revelation in that same vein, right, as burlesque. And so I see this story as like, a small snippet of that genre, right? That's how I read this part. Right, so we remember that when Zechariah got the news in the temple that Elizabeth was gonna be pregnant, he was struck mute, right? So he couldn't talk. And in that scene, he came out and he just started gesturing with his hands to try and tell people the news because they were like, oh, he can't talk, what happened in there? And so it's a little bit comic, 
right? We can just start to imagine like, well, okay, what particular hand gestures might you use to say that an angel told you that you and your wife were going to have a baby? I mean, you could you can do some pretty funny improv with that, right? Like, uh, and then like big belly, like, how do you tell that? And then nine months later here in the story, we have a parallel scene, right? The neighbors then are trying to communicate with a still mute Zechariah by it says making signs or making all kinds of motions. Only that's also funny because he's mute. He's not deaf, right? So he can understand them if they're talking and yet they're, they're going out there and they're making all of these gestures. But Zechariah has been motioning to them to communicate. And so it's like they're mirroring him, like either forgetting that he's mute, not deaf, um, or this is simply in there maybe for the comedic parallel of it, right? What he's been doing at them to communicate, they're just kind of doing back to him. And then we see the neighbors participating here in the actual naming process. And it reminds me of how people get kind of nosy with, with pregnant people. You know, people often ask like, how far along are you? What's the sex? Are they are they kicking? Is it is it a surprise that you are having a baby? How are you sleeping? Especially like in that third trimester. And here we see, I would say kind of like nosy neighbors are coming over for the bris. Oh, I see in the chat. Yeah, it does parallel Sarah's laughter with Isaac. It totally does. And so we see these neighbors coming over for the bris. And they're starting to tell the parents what the child should be named, right? They're saying they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah, is what the text says, right? It's a traditional village. There's pretty clear naming protocols. A child is supposed to be named after a family member, maybe an ancestor. And that's when Elizabeth jumps into that fray and she declares his name is John. And that's a breach, a family tradition. And they said to her, look, there's no one among your relatives who has that name. What are you thinking? What are you doing? So the neighbors don't like that answer. And it says they all turn and you could almost imagine like a theater performance, like where the crowd all turn at once, all the heads turn to look at Zechariah and they start gesturing wildly at him, even though he's mute. And in that chaotic scene, that's when Zechariah motions for a tablet and he uses it to back up his wife. His name is John. And in all of this, you know, frivolity and this humor, I think there's a serious point here that's embedded and that's that these people were under enormous stress and pressure under the Roman Empire. And they lived in really difficult and unfriendly to them times. And they took time to celebrate with each other. You know, something that you'll hear me say a lot if you're around is oppressed peoples know how to party, right? Because they, we know that celebrating is, it's psychologically crucial for maintaining hope and for finding the ability to like keep on keeping on right it's why pride parades are so like joyful and colorful and there's lots of glitter um part of that is like a survival tactic so it says that elizabeth's neighbors and relatives heard that the lord had shown her great mercy and they shared her joy they shared her joy so as we have right we've got that sentence there they shared her joy and then we've got all of the like funny antics that happen and then we follow that with Zechariah finding his voice again praising God declaring redemption as if it's already happened and so we've got this whole scene here the sharing of the joy with the neighbors the celebration ritual the humor the praising all of this is the heart of the story I think when we 
talk about Advent, we often talk about, you know, hunkering down into the darkness, right? We talk about sort of like embracing that space, preparing the way for light. But we have to remember too that part of hunkering into the darkness means surviving that darkness together, right? We survive and we prepare for the light and we do that how? We do it with joy and with celebration and with humor and with praise, right? So that's why with the third candle of the week, like we're well into Advent, we're nearing the winter solstice, the days are getting shorter, we're well into the darkness. And at this point, we remind ourselves of the importance of joy. So I was just reading an article in the New York Times that came out a couple of days ago. And it was talking about how some of the more like serious Oscar nominee type art movies that have been released in the last couple of years have been like complete box office flops. And there's a lot of speculation as to why probably, you know, many, many reasons, COVID, the rise of the streaming services. Um, but one of the reasons that resonated particularly with me was the suggestion that after a stressful few years, people just don't want to go see serious movies about heady topics. We just can't quite handle it. And in general, hopeful movies, joyful movies, dark comedies, these are what are making money right now. Right? There's some, there's a little movie, an Irish movie that's a dark comedy called The Banshees of Inishirin, which I haven't seen yet, but my wife has been talking about for like two months. We've been trying to find a theater near us apparently that has like been a surprise box office success um but it doesn't surprise me that much right because joy and laughter and hope and like making fun of the things that scare us those are survival strategies and our bodies and our minds have endured this sustained collective trauma that we are still coping with and we are still healing from and so even those of us who think that we're doing okay we're probably still not like 100% okay. Rachel and I still look at each other and we're like, even people who think they're okay, nobody's really okay. We're just not quite there. And one of the best ways to cope with like not being quite there, not being okay is with laughter, it's with joy. So I think we can embrace the darkness in Advent and we can face it and we can name it. We can turn our attention and anticipation to the coming light. But we can also learn from the stories of oppressed people that as we're waiting for that light, there can be humor. Right? And the John the Baptist story to me is the, it's the quintessential story for this. It's the quintessential story in our faith about how to prepare the way for the light of the world. And the way it does that is every year it leads us into that space with funny stories about nosy neighbors and about celebrating together. And so we can learn from that. Um, there's joy to be made. And there's joy to be found in the small moments of every day as we go through our week, if we have eyes to see that. So with that, I think with our meditation today, I'll invite us to, if you'd like, just take a couple of deep breaths and relax. Let's just spend a minute or two just reflecting on where are you finding joy? And also, how can we share our joy? I'm going to put those into the chat box so that you can look at them. Where are you finding joy? And then just how can we share that joy? Let's take a couple minutes. I'll, I'll let you know when that's up.
So Holy Spirit, we ask that you would help us to see and to experience moments of joy as we go through our week, um, that you would encourage us, that we would have eyes to see, um, even in the small bits of life, you know, the little the squirrels that are like super duper chubby this time of year and then just like sitting out on our back porch staring at us or in the little things that, that kids say and do just in all the little things in life lord help us to be able to acknowledge it and see it and uh, to just feel some of the perseverance that can arise from experiencing that joy and we help ask also that you would help it to overflow out of us that we'd be able to have moments of connected joy with other people as well as we survive the darkness and we move closer to the solstice and anticipate the coming light. In your name we pray. Amen.